This episode of Market Foolery is brought to you by NetSuite, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy to use cloud platform. Download their free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits Today, at netsuite.com. It's Monday, September 16th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today, the one and only Jason Moser. Thanks for being here. Howdy. We're going to talk ride sharing, we're going to talk global payments. We're going to start with oil, and I hope you filled up your car over the weekend. Because <laughs> no, I did actually. Exxon Mobil, Chevron, BP, Royal Dutch Shell, all of those stocks are on the rise this morning, and that's because oil prices are on the rise. And this is after a coordinated attack hit Saudi Arabia's oil industry over the weekend, forcing Saudi Arabia to cut its oil output by half. That is, I believe, if I'm doing the math right, ends up being about five percent of global production. But I mean, look, if you already own any one of these oil stocks, you're you're having a good day. How do you think about this story in terms of both the short term and the long term? Um, so I so I will say first and foremost, I don't believe. Let me double check this in my mind real quick. But I don't believe I have any direct. Ownership in any oil stocks. I mean, it's just we've talked a lot about um, on on these shows what makes investing in oil so difficult. I mean, because it is just a straight up commodity. I mean, obviously, a commodity that is very important <laughs> to making the world go around at this in, in this day and age. Uh, but it's a commodity nonetheless, and and so it is. It, 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 it doesn't. It seems like it's always beholden to. Particular uh, ebbs and flows in supply and demand, and if you're really going to get the opportunity to make some money investing in energy, then you have to be able to. Um, you need you need to be able to depend on some sort of a geopolitical event or something happening that you almost really can't predict. Other than you can just say, well, at some point down the line, there's going to be a geopolitical event that occurs that is going to make oil go up for whatever reason. And you know we. Been kind of calling for this for a while now, and it hasn't happened. I mean, oil oil prices have been very depressed going back all the way really to 2014. And if you look at the stock charts of a lot of these big familiar names in the industry, whether it's Exxon, those shares are down over the last five years. Chevron essentially flat. Halliburton down as well, even though they're up a little bit today. And then that really is because as as the commodity prices stay low, well, that limits the profitability these companies can can ring out. And so I think that's what makes investing in oil so difficult. It is a bit more short term in nature. I think it's a bit more value focused. You need to be able to identify a price in which you're happy to get out and just claim some profits. It's not to say that you can't make money doing it, but that's generally how I view investing in it, which is why I really kind of don't. Do you have any exposure to energy in your portfolio? I'm always reminded uh, anytime energy comes up of something Ron Gross said to me years ago, which was when he was running the million dollar portfolio service, he looked and thought, you know what, there's no energy exposure in here. It's a massive industry. And so I, I want to get together with my team and figure out a way to get some type of exposure, even if it's not directly in oil producers. Yeah, I mean, I guess. I guess the most direct exposure I'd have to energy would be probably something like Amazon with the investments that it makes in wind energy and and whatnot. I mean, I don't own any own any Tesla. Yeah, that's that's a couple of bank um, shots away. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so indirect, I think, is the best I can possibly give you right now. And it's not to say that I don't think 
Um, there's opportunity there, but I mean, frankly, I've never been attracted to the solar industry. And the one company where I thought perhaps it could pique my interest, Solar City. Well, we know how that turned out, Chris. And that's if anything made me a little bit more skeptical of the economics of, of the industry in in uh, in general. But I, I do think. You know, when you look at the way that oil moves around the the world, I mean, there's some very interesting numbers to take note of here. Because when you look at, so here we have the the 15 countries that imported the highest dollar value worth of crude oil during 2018. So the companies that are bringing the most oil in, China at number one. Uh, United States at number two, India at number three, Japan number four, South Korea at number five. Now, if you look at the top 15 suppliers from which the U.S. imported the highest dollar value worth of oil, in other words, where do we get all of our oil here? Canada is number one, Saudi Arabia is number two, Mexico number three. Now, you'll see that Saudi Arabia um, name across a lot of countries' interests there. A lot of countries get a lot of their oil from Saudi Arabia, which is why when you see something like this happen, uh, you see such a knee jerk reaction. One company I used to own, I don't own it anymore, but I was very interested to see how the stock would react today uh, it was Clean Energy Fuels. Now, Clean Energy Fuels is in natural gas and essentially natural gas for fleets and trucks and whatnot. And they've, they've had a pretty tough go of it just because of the price of oil. Um, they really need to see the price of a barrel of oil at $70 and higher for that value proposition to work out for their business model. I mean, as, as oil prices stay low, you have less incentive to switch over to natural gas. And uh, as good hearted as people think they are, I mean, economics at the end of the day rule, regardless of what you may think about the environmental impacts. Clean energy fuels up 8% today on this news. Not surprising at all, because now that value proposition becomes a little bit more apparent. So, I mean, you know, that's a business that's had a lot of, of, uh, of headwinds here lately. But if we do see the cost of oil start to creep up and, and maintain higher levels here going forward, yeah, clean energy could be a company that uh, stands to benefit a little bit here. Don't let that $2.30 stock price fool you. <laughs> On a day when the market in general is slightly in the red, shares of both Uber and Lyft are up four to five percent. This appears to be due entirely to an upgrade from HSBC, and I'll just quote directly from the upgrade, uh, HSBC writing: "We think regulatory concerns are priced in, whilst we continue to see a lot of optionality around product improvements for both Uber and Lyft." Do you agree with that? I don't think that regulatory concerns are necessarily priced in. That was, I, <laughs> go that was the first. No, I'm sorry to cut you off. That was the okay. first thing I thought. I was like, really? I mean, they seem to maybe they know something that we don't. I mean, you know, speak of regulatory concerns. I mean, one of the big ones out there is what California is doing with this uh, with this sort of gig economy bill. Um, the economics of businesses like Uber and Lyft. The story for the longest time, I mean, we've been looking at these businesses and thinking, all right, well, they're able to keep leaner cost structures because of their, uh, you know, the drivers are contractors, not full time employees. So they're not spending as much in maintaining that employee base as a company like us here, the Motley Fool might. I mean, you know, we have. However many employees we have, and we're paying for healthcare and retirement and all this good stuff. Um, Lyft and Uber and other businesses like that are are able to to maintain leaner cost structures because of that of that contractor um, status and and how that exactly shakes out to me seems very nebulous at this point. I mean, it does sound like um, California is going to sign that bill into law, 
And, and then it does sound like um, Uber and Lyft and other companies are really fighting to have their businesses exempt from that law on a permanent basis. I, I have no insight as to whether they'll actually be able to pull that off. I can tell you, if they don't pull it off, the cost of running their businesses are going to become a lot more prohibitive. I mean, it's going to be a lot more difficult for them to achieve profitability, which really then goes to the idea of what do they do with the networks? Because beyond just the economics of the business, it's the optionality. Now, I agree that the optionality is there, and there's all sorts of neat things they can do with those businesses. Um, they're in the middle of trying to do them, though, which means that you know a lot. A lot is yet to be written. So I, I don't. Man, it just seems to me. To maybe be a little bit overconfident there, but hey, you know, maybe they know something I don't. Well, and part of this upgrade was talking about in terms of what it means for shares of Uber and Lyft. They're talking about upside of 30 to 35 percent. But what you were just saying reminded me a little bit of the conversation we had on Motley Fool Money last Friday when we were talking about the We Company um, and how they updated their S1 filing mainly around the corporate governance. Uh, statutes and the point that you and Andy Cross and Ron Gross all made essentially was, well, that's fine, but you're st- <laughs> you still have the underlying business. Business model still sucks. And it's and it's you know I just sort of looked at this. And I thought, yeah, they do have the optionality, but it, to your point, some of that is in motion right now. And it'd be one thing if the underlying business was this money machine, but at the moment it's really not. No, and it, you know I think that with companies like Uber and Lyft, I mean the one thing that they've done early on, which I think is working in their favor, and it's it's kind of what it's kind of what Amazon did for um, consumers early on, and essentially it's it's not as much about low low prices; it's more about Good prices and really a convenient experience in being able to order something and having it delivered to your doorstep in X number of days. And so the customer really has been trained at this point to value convenience a little bit differently, perhaps, than we used to. I mean, we used to not really have a lot of options. We had to get in our car and go somewhere to go get something. Now, you have a lot of different ways that you can get your stuff, and it makes us value our time differently. And so, I think that what Lyft and Uber have done early on, it was less really about this, oh, wow, I can get a Lyft and an Uber and pay $10 less than I would pay for a cab. It's always really been about, how easy is it to do it? And you can do it anywhere. You just click a couple of buttons on your phone there, and boom, a ride shows up. So, it's all to say that I think down the road, I think both of these companies have a lot of room to raise prices strategically and methodically, not all at once, but I think over time, They'll be able to raise prices because we've come to really love the pro- the value proposition that they offer. I mean, the simplicity, the convenience. Um, I mean, it really is is nice. Now, if if we are able at some point to see uh, self driving cars take a, a bigger share on the road, um, these companies should be able to monetize that. Certainly, Uber uh, is doing a very good job monetizing. The Eats business, or at least you know, growing that business. I mean, they they reported last quarter uh, gross bookings of three point four billion dollars just for the Eats business alone. That was up almost one hundred percent, and they've got three hundred and fifteen thousand restaurants on board with that platform now. And I, I think as time goes on, 
I feel like we're moving more towards people ordering food as opposed to preparing it at home. And, and so I think that's something that they'll be able to really fire in on as well. It's interesting to see how the market values these stocks. I mean, Lyft and Uber in that four times sales range. Um, and so, I mean, the market is looking at them both and thinking, well, the prospects, they're not giving really the edge to one or the other. Though I think in this, in, at this stage, you probably have to look at Uber and think, well, the scale alone gives them a little bit more uh, wiggle room there. But, yeah, I mean the upgrade, thirty-five percent upside. That's not how we really do things here, right? I mean, we're not looking for that thirty-five percent upside and then let's sell and go do something else. I mean, we're looking at these businesses and thinking, are these businesses we want to own for long periods of time? From that perspective, hey, I mean, I could see owning Uber or Lyft or you know a basket of the two and thinking, well, it's a five to a ten-year play, right? But I do like the trends, so there's that. Quick shout out to NetSuite. If you don't know your numbers, you don't know your business, and the problem that growing businesses like Uber and Lyft have that keeps them from knowing their numbers is their patchwork quilt of business systems. One for accounting, another for sales, another for inventory. It's inefficient, it's a mess, it takes too much time and too many resources, and that hurts the bottom line. That's where NetSuite by Oracle comes in. It's the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy to use cloud platform. It gives you the visibility and control that you need to grow. With NetSuite, you save time, money, and unneeded headaches by managing sales, finance, accounting, orders, and HR instantly right from your desktop or phone. And that's why NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system. And right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable insights with a free guide. Seven key strategies to grow your profits. I think they had one that was five key strategies, and they said, you know what, we can make this even better. It's like seven minute abs. Exactly. You can go to netsuite.com slash fool to find it. That's netsuite.com slash fool to download your free guide, seven key strategies to grow your profits at netsuite.com slash fool. I know you are digging into this next story on Industry Focus later today, but I did want to touch on it just briefly. Accenture has published a report that, on the surface, does not appear to be great news for the banking industry. <laughs> um, the headline of the report is, Banks risk losing $280 billion in payments revenue by 2025. That's somewhere in the neighborhood of 15% of payments revenue. Um, I'm sure the big banks would like to have that $280 billion, but right now, it looks like the beneficiaries are going to be businesses like PayPal and Square. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is it is a very big um, it's a very big market out there to grab as far as the market of money moving around the world. We talk about it often, and I mean, big banks are big because they've been able to take advantage uh, for the longest time of kind of being the only game in town, right? I mean, for for a really long time, they've been the ones pulling the strings and. To put a little context around that, I mean, I remember back in 2000, and I guess it was like 2001, 2002, when I was working at Bank of America as a loan officer, and you know, we would help people with account management and whatnot. And it struck me that anytime I ever saw someone coming in with business service needs and they needed something, they they had a business and they needed to be able to accept credit cards. And so that was immediately something that would refer over to our merchant services side of the business. And and it always struck me that the merchant services side of the business was so clunky and cumbersome, and yet it seemed like the bank made a killing on it because it really was kind of the only game in town. Um, And you fast forward to today, and certainly technology has changed everything for the 
better. And so, I mean, yeah, when you when you look at this, I mean, it's certainly understandable why the big banks are thinking, "Oh my God, we got to protect our interests here," uh, because it it does sound like they are in a little bit of a bind there. And you know, I mean, it's it's. Look, I mean, you've got the Fed looking to create their own sort of system to disrupt the automatic clearinghouse to make transfers even even faster. The big banks are trying to fight the Fed on that. The small banks are in favor because it makes them more uh, competitive. And so, you know, a lot of a lot of things at play here because there's a lot of money to be had. Uh, but by the same token, you know, one of the things that you see in that report is you're talking about this payments industry. Essentially, payments are being whittled down to free, right? And and we've talked a lot about that. The payments industry. I mean, it's one of the competitive advantages for a company like Square or PayPal. They're going in there and charging next to nothing for these transfers. And you ask yourself, well, how can they do that and still be a good business? Well, ideally, you build a an ecosystem, so to speak. You build out more services so that you're not just a payment transaction business. And so, you know, you look at something like Square. I mean, that's the importance of the two sided network on both the buyers and the sellers. I mean, they're providing software, hardware services for uh, their their sellers to be able to open up shop. They have the Cash App that is helping buyers do more things with their money from a mobile perspective. They've got Square Capital, which is in the lending side of the of of the uh, equation. There, you've got Square dabbling on the brokerage side now, obviously making some early bets with Bitcoin. Uh, so it's all to say that these smaller, more nimble tech companies like Square and PayPal um, have a lot of upside there, I think, because they're figuring out new ways to do things in a market where uh, a, a just a very few players held so much of this way for so long. If you're not already listening to Industry Focus, there's a good opportunity to check out today's episode. And it's free to subscribe, just one click of a button. Jason Moser, always good talking to you. Thank you, sir. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That does it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show's mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.